Before we do, before we read this text and before we pray, um, I just want to share my heart with you this morning. Uh, Today is a joyful day for me, and today is also uh, a hard, uh, heavy, and, and a bit of a somber day for me. It's joyful today for me because 22 years ago, Jennifer and I went on a first date which makes this our 23rd Valentine's Day together. She has been through a lot with me. She's been through a lot because of me. And yet she still loves me. And I love her. She is far more than I deserve. But my heart is also heavy today. I don't know if you guys are watching... um, some of the news and, and what's going on in Christianity today, but um, Christian leaders, maybe some of them self-professed, are, um, are falling one by one by one because of sin and moral failure and egregious things. And, and as I've read even this week about uh, Christian leaders who... Um, where, where things are coming to light uh, of things that they have done, ways that they have abused women and, and church finances and, um, or ministry finances maybe. It's just really, uh, it, it's got me uh, sad. It's got me um, angry a little bit. It's got me um, hurting for their families and, uh, and for the people who were abused. Um, And so I just want to make a statement today that says uh, spiritual leadership given by God as a gift to the church has never been and is never supposed to be for the taking advantage, abuse of people. God has invested uh, authority and responsibility in the leaders of the, the church so that they might be humble servants of people, not, not users of people and abusers of people. And I think maybe one of the things that's as sad to me as the abuses that, that are being uh, uh, committed by, by Christian leaders or maybe even self-proclaimed Christian leaders, is the failure of organizations to investigate those. I just don't ever want that to be the reality here. I want Trinity Baptist to be a place where if there is an accusation of impropriety, sin, abuse, rape, molestation, whatever it may be, that we as, as a church and as elders will take that seriously. Uh, it would be a tragic thing if the church ever, uh, even I'll just put myself out there, if there was any accusation against me and the church said, there's no way, that would be wrong. We should investigate those things. We should look into those things. We should take them seriously. And they should never be something that is comfortable here. I, I, I want Trinity Baptist to be a place where if you are an abuser, you are scared to be here. And if you are abused, you might feel safe. And 
I, I think Satan's having a heyday in the church. I think we forget that, that the Christian life is spiritual warfare. And it's not spiritual warfare in, in gigantic, uh, crazy, demon-possessed ways. Satan's favorite attack is in subtle ways at the, at the sin that so easily entangles us. Where we love leaders more than Christ, where we love position more than Christ, where we love success more than Christ or influence more than Christ. And I think Satan understands that if he can get Christian leaders to fall, the world will not only accuse that leader, they will accuse the church and they will accuse Christ. And people whose faith sadly rested in those people uh, begins to topple. So I'm going to ask you to do a diagnostic test with me this morning. I want you to fill in the blank at the end of this sentence. I am a Christian because of. What name comes to mind? I am a Christian because of. Because of grace. If the answer is anything other than Christ by grace, you need to do some work in your heart. Our faith cannot rest upon Christian leaders. I promise you, I already have, I've already fulfilled it to some of you, that if you spend time with me, I will let you down or hurt you, or both. Maybe more than once. Surely more than once. If your faith rests on me, that is a shaky foundation. Or on any other Christian leader. If your faith rests on anything other than Christ, I think there's work that needs to be done in our hearts. If Christian leaders are the reason we're believers, when they fall, our faith will fall. If people are the reason you come to church, when they leave or hurt you or upset you or whatever, you might too. Christ is the only sure and certain and solid and unshakable foundation of our faith. And because of that, we are continuing in Colossians and searching out the, the supremacy of Christ in all things. And today, as we turn now to the text after that uh, heavy moment, forgive me for that, but I think it is necessary and important, I want to read to you Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23, and then we will look today at Jesus, our supreme reconciler. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to, to confess the supremacy of Christ in all things. Lord, that the gospel of Christ is, 
is the supreme message that we have, that our holiness is his supreme delight, that he is the supreme redeemer, having offered us the forgiveness of sins, that he is the supreme person, the firstborn, the ultimate priority, that all things exist by him and for him and through him and to the praise of your glorious grace. And today, Lord, we come to see that he is our supreme reconciler. Lord, I pray this morning for the leaders of Trinity, that we would be uh, men who are open, vulnerable, accountable to one another, honest with our sin, confessing that you would do work in us to cut out those sins that so easily entangle us. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from any kind of failure like that. And Lord, as a church, I pray that our hope and our trust and the foundation of our faith would be you and you alone, that it would not be your church, that it would not be uh, its leaders, but that it would be you and your word. And that we would understand that you are the only sure and certain and unshakable foundation. That everything else will fade and disappoint, but only you will never disappoint, never fade, never do wrong, never sin against us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to remove those leaders who would abuse and use people for their own pleasure from your church. But Lord, I, I, I am saddened over the, the tarnished reputation that the gospel and that your son has. And so Lord, I pray that you would, um, as you already have, do everything necessary to, uh, to protect the glory of your name and your fame and your renown in the world. Lord, may your name and even your renown be the desire of our hearts. Father, work among us sound doctrine, not for the sake of being right, not for the sake of knowing more than others, but, but would you work in us a soundness to our doctrine and what we believe so that we might worship you rightly and truly and in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you and so that we might reflect your character rightly and truly into the world. Lord, we pray this not only for us, but we pray for Amazing Grace Church this morning and their interim pastor, Bill. Lord, may they be faithful to the gospel, faithful to take it out into the world, faithful to, to drink it in in their own lives that they might be transformed by what you have done for us. Lord, we pray also this morning for Peter and Debbie Dodd and as they uh, do their work in China. Lord, we thank you for the praises that they have shared with us of people trusting in Christ. And Lord, we pray that there might be great discipleship of those new believers and that they would be planted firmly in the word and upon Christ and that they would become evangelists, taking the gospel out to the areas where they live and work and play. Lord, we pray that you, for, for Peter and Debbie, you would provide for them for furlough next summer and that they might get a rest and a break. And Lord, we pray for the political tensions in the area that they are serving and that the church there would be strengthened. Lord, we know this morning that among us, uh, among the body here at Trinity, there are people hurting, people sad, people who have experienced loss. Lord, thank you for the privilege of even uh, 
having sat with some of them in those hard times this week. But Lord, I pray that you would be the comforter of the downcast, that you would give strength to the weary, that you would give peace where there is none, and that you would give us sure and certain trust and hope in you when we can't make sense of things around us. Lord, let as a church, let the word sound forth from us and give us open eyes and soft hearts to hear and receive and obey your word today and let it all be for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the privilege some years ago of hearing Don Richardson uh, speak. And if you've never met or heard of Don Richardson, he's got some great books. But uh, he came and he told his story of going on the mission field to this, uh, this tribe. I believe it was in Papua New Guinea. And he was trying to share the gospel with these people. He had learned the language and he was living amongst them. And, and he shared the message of what Christ had done. But in their culture and in the backwards ways in which they viewed morality, uh, the, the, the great hero of the story of Jesus' death was not Jesus for dying in our place, but Judas. Because that kind of tricky, backwards, uh, uh, deceitful behavior was valued in their country or in their, their culture. And they viewed Jesus as just being this, uh, the, this guy who was able to be duped. And then one day, the tribe where Don lived went to war with a neighboring tribe. And as the two tribes were fighting, uh, somebody from the other tribe, I believe, I don't remember all the details of the story exactly, but, but one woman from one of the tribes ran through the battlefield, and she gave her own child, a son, to the other tribe. And immediately the war ceased. And Don was confused by what had happened. And so he started asking people. And in that culture, this child given by one angry tribe to the other angry tribe was called a peace child. And a peace child was the most valued person in the community. We, we could even say the supreme person. The worst thing you could do in that culture would be to trick or do anything against that peace child. And as long as the peace child was alive, there was peace between the two warring tribes. Don was able to then tell the, the tribes that, that Christ was God's peace child. And all of a sudden, the whole picture changed. No longer was Judas the hero. He was the bad guy who, who dared do something against a peace child. And an incredible number of people uh, came to trust in Jesus as God's peace child. It's a beautiful picture. But it falls a little short. It's a beautiful picture of, of reconciliation, of bringing two opposed parties together in unity and peace. That's what reconciliation is. And, and as we talk about Jesus as our supreme reconciler, that's the picture I want to have, the one who takes an opposed party on one side, an opposed party on the other side, and brings them together peacefully, bridges that gap between the two. It's a, this, this peace child picture of, from Don Richardson is a beautiful picture, but it falls a little short as all analogies do. It probably gets our nature right. 
If we think of ourselves as angry, warring tribes against the Lord, that's probably a right picture. Look with me at verse 21 of Colossians 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. But what it doesn't get right is God's nature. See, see the biblical picture is not of, of a hateful people and a hateful God being brought together by Christ. The biblical picture is of a spiteful people, that's us, and a gracious God, who, as we're told in Titus 1-2, promised salvation before the world even began. God, no doubt, is angry at sin, hates it, punishes it. But the picture of an angry, vengeful God who is merely pacified by Christ is not the biblical picture. And I must be honest, I struggled with this for a long time. And if you do too, that's okay. How can God be both angry at my sin and merciful? And, and which comes first? God, aren't these opposed ideas that God would be angry even wrathful at sin, and at the same time gracious and merciful? I don't believe they are opposed ideas. God is holy and just, to be sure. He cannot and will not tolerate sin, but he is also loving and kind and merciful and gracious. I came across a line from A.W. Tozer. It's not an exact quote, and I've shared it before, but it was tremendously helpful to me in this, where he said that God's first move is always towards mercy, but will deal in wrath where his mercy is despised. And I think if we were to survey Scripture, we, we could see that clearly, that God creates Adam and Eve in the garden, and he sets them in perfection, and they demand autonomy. They reject his good rule. They, they seize the fruit. They want to define for themselves what is right and wrong, good and evil. God cannot both tell me no and be good, and so I'm going to seize this thing that he has told me no to. And he, God promised that in the day they ate of the fruit of that tree, they would surely die. And yet they did not. They didn't die. Something else did. And God clothed them in the skin of the other thing that died. And he, he promised a Savior that day. It, with Abraham, God dealt with mercy first. With Jacob, he dealt in mercy first. With Moses, with David with Peter, and with you and me. God's first move is always towards mercy. But we'll deal in wrath where his mercy is despised. God didn't ignore our sin. He's not like the, the, the grandfather in the rocking chair on the front porch winking at the indiscretions of his teenage grandson. He didn't pretend it didn't happen. No, certainly he is too holy and just for that, But what he did, in great love and mercy and grace, he made a plan to deal with our sin. And how does he deal with our sin? By becoming one of us. By living perfectly and fulfilling his own law, absolutely. And then dying in our place, like the lamb in the garden that died instead of Adam and Eve. He dies in our place and rises in victory. We can't underestimate the importance of this because in order for, for Christ, 
the one who took on flesh, the, the second member of the Trinity, eternally God, submitted to the Father, in order for him to reconcile God and man, he has to be both. In order to represent both sides, he has to be both. And we saw that last week, and so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it today, but last week we saw that in Christ's very nature, he is eternally God and has become man. Both truly God and truly man. But Paul, here in this section, and we would be lost if we didn't rec- on, on the importance of it if we didn't recognize it, reiterates that for us. He reiterates for us that Jesus is eternally God. Look again with me at verse 19. For in him, that him is Christ, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It was a fitting place for the fullness of God. All that God is, his nature, his character, everything that it means to be God, fittingly dwelled in Christ. And as such, he is able to represent God. The picture that comes to my mind is, as God, he is able to take the hand of our Father. And as man, he is able to take our hand. Again, look with me at verse 19. How did he, how did he do this reconciling work? He made peace by the blood of his cross. Blood, that is distinctly physical. And verse 22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. As God, he is able to take the hand of God. As man, he is able to take our hand and bridge the gap between the two. Colossians 1.15 has already told us, we saw last week, that he is the image of the invisible God. He has revealed God to us. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he is like us and able to sympathize in our weakness, understanding how we experience life. He is our great reconciler, reaching out to God as God on one side and man as man on the other and bridging the two, bringing two things into accord so that they might see and understand things the same way. That's kind of what reconciliation means. If we think of, you know, when we used to actually have a check register and a bank statement, you would reconcile the two, right? And when they both said the same thing, they had been reconciled. And Christ as our great reconciler, stands between the two. And when we confess our sin, when we, when we agree with God that we are sinful and that he is holy, that he is just and we deserve wrath, that he is merciful and offers it in Christ, when the statement of our lives says the same as the statement of God, then we are reconciled in Christ to one another. And so in order to be our great reconciler, he had to be both God and man, or has often been said, the God-man. But again, that being who he is, I want to look this morning at three reasons why Jesus is our supreme reconciler. Three reasons why Jesus is our supreme reconciler. And, And first, he has reunited us to God. He has reunited us to God. Uh, If you remember from last week, and I I hope you do, uh, Paul showed us, or at least by way of reminder, Paul showed us how Jesus relates to the whole world. How he is ruler and creator and sovereign over all things. He then zooms in on the church and says, here's how Christ relates to the church. Well, we find the same pattern 
here. Look with me first at verse 20. We see that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and through him, again, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself, that himself is God the Father, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. There is a sense, in a universal sense, in which all things through Christ are reconciled to God. Now, now this is not universalism. What I mean by that is, this is not the statement that every person for all time who has ever lived, no matter what their faith or religion or beliefs or rejection of God is saved. This is not universalism. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus is clear that there are some who go to eternal punishment particularly those who despise God's mercy. But there are some who through Christ receive eternal life. So, so what sense is Paul meaning? What does he mean here when he says that all things are reconciled to God? Well, I think he has in view here a Romans 8 type reconciliation. What do I mean by Romans 8? Well, in Romans 8, we're told, uh, you, if you read through Romans 8, you'll see the word groaning repeatedly. That all creation groans under the weight of sin. That believers groan under the weight of sin. That even the Spirit of God groans with us under the weight of sin. But it won't always be that way. There is a time, maybe near, maybe far, we don't know, where Christ, having completed all that he has been called to complete, when he is done with this creation, will we'll raise all people from the dead, and the dead in Christ will go to heaven, and those who did not know Christ will be judged and spend an eternity in torment. But that in that day, whether it's to judgment or to grace, when, when God undoes this world and it goes away and it is burned up, and before he creates a new heaven and a new earth, one way or another, all things will be accounted for. For those who have trusted Christ, according to Christ's mercy. And for those who have not, according to our sin. But either way, in grace or in judgment, all things, because of Christ, will be reconciled to God. And then in verse 22, he zooms in on the church. Notice the change in language in verse 21. And you... There's a shift now, not to all things, but to you, to the, to the Colossians, specifically, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, that's a generic term for both, or can include both, there, you, you brothers and sisters, you faithful in Christ, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, uh, to, to make the point, you in his body of flesh by his death. This is how he reconciles believers. All things in one sense will be reconciled to God, but those who have trusted Christ, those who have agreed with him, those whose, whose lives account for things the same way as God does, who, who have trusted Christ as the supreme reconciler, he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. This is really important. To what end, though? To what end? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All things will be reconciled to God. But not all things will be reconciled to God in the same way. 
But for those of us who have believed, who have trusted in Christ, he has reunited us in peace, verse 20, and to present us holy and blameless and above reproach to God the Father. The second reason he is the supreme reconciler is because not only has he reunited us to the Father, but he has regenerated our nature. He has regenerated our nature. Look with me at verses 21 and the beginning of 22. Again, and you, and then we get this description of ourselves. And it's not good, right? It's a Psalm 5 kind of description of ourselves. And if we're really honest, we have to admit that this is who we were. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This picture isn't good. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil. That's literally what the Greek reads, doing evil. Alienated from who? From God. Hostile in mind towards who? Towards God. Doing evil against who? God. But in Christ, God has changed our nature. The old is gone, the new has come, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you turn back with me, just two books to Ephesians. Past Philippians and two Ephesians. We get a a similar picture, but maybe expanded a little bit. Ephesians and Colossians, man, they go hand in hand. Paul wrote them at similar times to similar places, and they bear very similar messages. And so if you really want to grasp Colossians, read Ephesians simultaneously. But listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, that is among the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... I can't remember who said it, but somebody along the lines I read said those might be the two most important words in Scripture. But God, we were alienated, hostile, doing evil, dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And praise God for those two words. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has not only reunited us to himself, but he has regenerated us. He has changed our nature. He has taken us from dead to life, from hostile to friendly, from alienated to near, from evil to righteous. He has completely made us new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. But there's something really, really important to note here. I think we often 
maybe in our finite, fallen, sinful way of thinking about God, uh, think about him in the wrong way. Uh, we, we, we tend to fault him for being angry at our sin. Why, why is God so harsh towards our sin? I'll never forget this, uh, this conference. R.C. Sproul and several others were there sitting on stage, and somebody asked the, the question, why was the consequence in the garden for Adam and Eve's sin so harsh? And R.C. Sproul goes to answer the question, and he, he gets upset. He says, so harsh? What's the matter with you people? And everybody starts to laugh, and they realize he's not kidding. He says the holy, eternal, just, sovereign God made these creatures from the dirt and they dared to defy him? So harsh? So harsh? He told them they'd die and yet they didn't die. Not that day and not the next and not the next and not the next and something else died in their place, and they were clothed by God and promised a Savior who would die in their place and clothe them with righteousness. So harsh, we dared defy the living God. How could a good God send anyone to hell? Why is he so severe? But I think the thing we have to note in this passage is that it's not God's nature that needed changed. At the cross, God, Christ does not change the nature of God. And by grace, through faith, God does not change his own disposition towards sin. No, what he does is change our nature. He changes our disposition. He, he changes who we are. It wasn't God who needed changing. It was us. No doubt, if you're a scholar, I'm not denying propitiation here, that, that, God is, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? It means, well, propitious means to make one favorable. So there is a sense in which God was angry with us, but his wrath is satisfied at the cross, and he is no longer angry with us. But it's not because God's nature changed. It's because the penalty for our sin was paid for and our nature has been changed. His, his nature, despite his holiness and hatred of sin and complete intolerance of it, was to plan before he ever created anything, again Titus 1-2, to provide everything necessary for our redemption. It's not the son who plans redemption and placates the father. It's the father who plans redemption and reconciliation, who offers grace and mercy and sends his son. And his son willingly comes to earth, takes on flesh, and obediently uh, lives a life in perfect holiness to God, and obediently goes to the cross and dies the death that we deserve to die, and victoriously is resurrected from the dead so that we who might believe and trust in him and not our own goodness so that we might account for sin the same way that God does so that Christ our supreme reconciler might bridge the gap he changes us he 
changes our nature. He reunites us to the Father by regenerating us. And thirdly and finally, he is the ultimate and perfect and supreme reconciler because he has raised us up with himself. Why did he do all of this reconciling work? Look again with me at verse 22. In order to. this In Greek, this is called a, a henna clause. It's a purpose clause. What is the purpose of the reconciliation of Christ in his body of flesh by his death? It is to present you and me, holy and blameless and above reproach. Notice the triads there. The first one is alienated, hostile, and evil. And now in Christ, we are holy and blameless and above reproach. This is our future. Our future is eternity in perfection with God. Here, though, not quite so much yet. We're still struggling with our nature, right? Spirits made alive, bodies and flesh still dead. Here we are declared to be perfect. There we are made perfect on the merits of Christ. How do we respond to all of this? How do we respond to Christ as our great reconciler who reunites us to the Father, who regenerates our nature, and who raises us up with himself? There are two ways. First, we persevere. Look with me at verse 23 at the opening. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. We persevere in our faith. God, this side of heaven does not uh, require our perfection for forgiveness, but he does say that our forgiveness results in perseverance. Now, I will say that we have to understand this rightly. Paul here, as we, as we look at this, is not saying that you will be saved on the condition that you persevere. It's not what the if here means. The if here is, is more like since. When Christ regenerates us, gives us a new nature, reunites us to the Father, raises us up with himself, even as we're also told in Ephesians, we, the fruit of that work of Christ in our life is perseverance. But, there's so, but we have to tend to that, right? We're told to put to death the sin that is in us. Hebrews 2 warns us not to neglect so great a salvation that has been given to us. And so we tend the faith that God has given us. Like Adam and Eve were called to tend the garden. We tend it by prayer, whereby God changes us. We tend it by scripture reading. We tend it by gathering as a church. Maybe I should say that again. We tend it by gathering as a church. There are two aspects of our sanctification, the personal and the corporate. And both are essential ingredients for spiritual health. There has to be personal investment in your relationship with God through prayer and through the reading of his word. But there also has to be corporate investment in your spiritual life by gathering for worship, by corporate singing, by praying together, by hearing the preaching of the word of God. We tend it by preaching. We, pre we tend it by Hebrews stirring one another to love and good deeds. 
I'm going to step out on a limb here for a moment and potentially upset people. And I'm not trying to judge the rightness or wrongness of what you're doing or even say what you should or shouldn't be doing right now. But I am saying that I believe there to be inherent and dangerous realities of simply watching church from home. There is no spiritual accountability there. You can watch church and satisfy your conscience and live like hell and nobody's going to know. I don't mean that as a euphemism. I mean it literally. There is no accountability. I shared before the analogy of of rock climbing. it's, It's really foolish to rock climb without being clipped to the rock that is Christ and to one another because both are necessary to hold you up should you fall. And so it is with the church. We need accountability with one another. We need to be so saturated with the gospel and the whiteness of snow that God has covered our our lives with and our sin with that we're so certain of his ability to reconcile us to God and to one another that we can confess our sins to one another and be accountable. There is no accountability if you merely watch online. There is no encouraging one another to love and good deeds. You you can spiritually consume a church service as you watch online, but you cannot be of spiritual benefit to others. You can't. There's no Ephesians 4 uh, where where we're told that the body being joined and connected by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. You can't be properly connected and properly functioning as the body and and have the body of Christ grow. In other words, I think what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4, there's a reason we don't dissect live people. Who wants to sign up for that? None of us. It's certain death. There is no 1 Corinthians 12 body. Remember what Paul says there. If everybody's an eye, where's the sense of smell? And if everybody's a nose, where's the taste and the touch? You might be able to be an eyeball at home, but you can't be a complete body. Now here's what I am, and let me be very, very clear about what I am and what I am not saying. I am not saying you should not watch online in this time. I don't want to upset people that way. And I also don't necessarily want to say that. It might well be perfectly reasonable and a loving and kind thing for you to do for maybe a family member, for yourself, for somebody in your household, or for others, for you to be home right now. But I would say this. The moment that it is safe and good for you to return, you should make a beeline for the church. Because you should understand that you're a rock climber, not connected to another climber. If I'm a rock climber and I got a long rope and I'm just hooking it into clip after clip after clip as I climb, but nobody's connected to the other end of the rope, if I fall, I'm going down. Make a beeline 
for the corporate fellowship, gathering, accountability, worship, preaching of God's word as soon as you can. We tend our salvation. And secondly, we proclaim the gospel. Look with me again at verse 23. If indeed you have you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. If you're a Christian, it's because of Jesus. But somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody had the guts to tell you you were a sinner. Somebody told you you were in need of a savior. Someone told you you were alienated from God, hostile in mind, and needed to be reconciled to God through Christ. And now, as one reconciled to God through Christ, you have been commissioned by him to tell others. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 18 and 19 says this. Well, I'm going to go back to verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal. Everybody is an eternal soul. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We've already seen that verse. There's the regenerating, reconciling, reuniting work of Christ. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, this is our message to the world, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We tend our faith, but we tell of Christ. Where you live, where you work, where you play, if you have a home, a job, a neighborhood, a family, friends, a hobby, Anything, you've been given it by God as an ambassador to go tell people about Jesus. You've been given the charge to share the reconciling work of Christ out there and to call people, be reconciled to God because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Have you relegated this to the church or to your pastor? If you want somebody to know Jesus, is your goal to bring them to church, to meet Chris or me? Or is your goal to tell them about Jesus Christ, our supreme reconciler? We have been given a peace child, and as long as the peace child is alive, there is peace. And the grave is empty, death couldn't hold him, he has conquered death and lives forever, and he will ever and always eternally be our peace child. You can trust him to save you, but tend your faith and persevere and tell others what he has done. Lord, we thank you for giving us Christ. 
our supreme reconciler who has brought us back to you, reunited us to you in peace, changed our nature, dealt with our sin, clothed us in righteousness and commissioned us to go out and tell others about what you have done for us through him. May we do so for the good of others and for your glory so that we might see others join into your worship. Lord, let us never forget the mission that you have set us on in this world and give us great boldness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.